If you've been with us, we have um, we spent this entire fall semester preaching through the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, and we're doing this because it's the oldest, it's the clearest expression of what it is that Christians believe. It showed up as early as the 200s as a liturgy for baptism, which is pretty amazing. So this creed that we confess almost each and every week here at Resurrection, it represents the heart of what Christians have professed, the heart of what people Christians have built their lives on uh, for almost 2,000 years. It's, not, it's named the Apostles' Creed not because the apostles wrote it, but because it summarizes what the apostles taught. These men who had firsthand experience with the risen Christ and then passed on what he said and did to us. And we've entitled this series Rooted precisely because modern life increasingly feels more and more unrooted, doesn't it? It feels like there's fewer and fewer things that are holding us in place and something bigger than ourselves. Modern life feels insecure and confusing and divided and ever-shifting. It is what the Bible describes as being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So my hope as we've gone through this is that this series, that as a result of looking at these truths, that you would be rooted and built up in Christ, that you would be established in the faith. So today we're going to come to the next to last phrase in the creed, which is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And on the one hand, this has to be the most distinguishable thing that Christians believe, right? If you know nothing else about the Christian faith, you know that we believe that Christ died for the forgiveness of sins. However, I want to put before you today, it is also the thing that is most disappearing from our culture. And when forgiveness disappears, inevitably something else is going to rise to take its place to guide us in how we deal with sinners. And I think the most notable thing that has come into its place lately is what we, some have called, cancel culture. It is fair to ask if cancel culture has unseated our belief in the forgiveness of sins. Do we believe in redemption anymore as a community, as a culture? Do we actually believe in the forgiveness of sins anymore? Dr. Tim Keller recently wrote an essay for Comment Magazine that's going to be featured throughout the sermon, by the way. It's, it's amazing. The essay was entitled, The Fading of Forgiveness, Tracing the Disappearance of the Thing We Need Most, where he describes the factors in our world today that make forgiveness more and more offensive and unpalatable. He says, we live in this tension between mercy and justice, right? How do we hold people accountable for their actions and have justice? Isn't forgiveness just cheap grace that just perpetuates or even enables uh, people to continue in their violence and wrongdoing? Keller writes, forgiveness is seen now as radically unjust and impractical, as short-circuiting the ability of victims to gain honor and virtue as others rise to defend them. In this new culture that we are in, Keller says, there's no better way for people and for institutions to gain honor than to mercilessly punish anyone seen as a victimizer. You feel this, right? You, this, is, this is the world we're living in. This new honor system is what some have called cancel culture, where virtue is found in competing for status as victims or as defenders of victims. Keller quotes Alan Jacobs, who says that even though Christianity is fading from influence, 
The world is actually getting more moralistic, not less. This is fascinating. Jacobs writes, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serve as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. That's so powerful. And it shows us that cancel culture is truly unsustainable because it offers no future. And in the words of Desmond Tutu, the South African who knows all too well, without forgiveness, there is no future. Or in the words of Hannah Arendt, who's a Jewish political philosopher writing after the Holocaust, she says, without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity to act would, as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we could never recover. We would remain the victims of its consequences forever, not unlike the sorcerer's apprentice who lacked the magic formula to break the spell. This is why Keller says forgiveness is the thing, is the one thing we need most, and why it's so alarming that it's disappearing. Because otherwise, none of us can recover from our failures. We will be doomed, we will be held by the community around us to inhabit them forever never change, to never escape an identity associated with them. Unfortunately, there is one institution in the world that has in its foundational charter, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Friends, what an opportunity for the church in our times. As Keller concludes, the most obvious contribution that the church could make is to recover its own theology and practice of forgiveness and become a true counterculture that can serve as a witness to the world. Friends, that's what I want to talk about today. We're going to go to one of the most famous passages in all the scriptures on this subject to learn what it means to recover our belief in the forgiveness of sins. Would you stand for the reading of that scripture lesson? This is Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35 the parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. 
And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. My Father, we thank you for the gift of your word that we are not left on our own to figure out who you are and what it means to believe in you. Lord, we're thankful even more for the Holy Spirit who authored these words and now comes and moves in our hearts to help us to hear, to see, to understand. So we ask for his help now and we pray. I pray for myself that that I would proclaim not myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord and myself as a servant for Jesus' sake. I pray that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, would shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. To be seated. So we're in the home stretch of the creed. And the home stretch began with, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the executor of the Godhead. He's the one who executes the plan of the Father. He applies the work of the Son. It's the Holy Spirit who gives birth to this community that's called the church, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. So therefore, there is no church without the Spirit. And now, logically thinking, there is no communion of saints without the forgiveness of sins, right? You cannot have communion with anyone without the forgiveness of sins. One commentator I read this week says, Forgiveness is necessary for life. A person cannot stay married or raise children or have parents or teach or buy and sell or do any of the callings of life without having to forgive and be forgiven. That's why, that's why Jesus taught us to pray, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's absolutely necessary. So what makes communion with God and with each other possible and sustainable? That's the plan. That's the vision for the Christian community. But as Mike Tyson famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So everyone believes in the forgiveness of sins until they are sinned against. And that's when it becomes real. That's when we feel the tension between mercy and justice. Then comes the dilemma, as one commentator put it, when we are wronged, we want justice. When we are in the wrong, we want mercy. When we need forgiveness, we hope others are better forgivers than we are. Friends, that's exactly where the servant finds himself in Jesus' parable in Matthew 18. He is utterly relieved to receive mercy when he is in the wrong. And yet he's utterly reluctant to give mercy when he has been wronged. And Jesus says, this is the most dangerous, the most precarious place you can be if you are a Christian. So how do we do it? How on earth can we deny our natural bent towards vengeance and defy our cultural bent away from forgiveness? How in the world can we as a community believe in the forgiveness of sins? Well, first of all, what I want to put before you is that we have to believe in sins. (laughs) Makes sense, right? To believe in the forgiveness of sins, we first have to believe in sins. And I'm not talking about of humanity in general. I'm talking about 
yours and mine in particular. You have to know how massive your debt is before God. In Jesus' story, clearly God is the king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And you and I are that first servant who owes an astronomical debt. Friends, that man owes 10,000 talents. Do you know how much that is? One talent is roughly equal to 15 years' worth of wages. So 10,000 talents are the equivalent to 150,000 years' worth of paychecks. To take what you make in a given year and multiply it by 150,000. That is billions of dollars. It's a debt you would expect that for a country to have, not an individual, right? How in the world did this man run up such a debt? It is intentionally inconceivable. It is intentionally unpayable. And that's the point. You and I have amassed an unpayable debt before God, and our only recourse is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of the king. You know, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, he's often dealing with people who have a hard time understanding the debt of their own sinfulness. These are the religious types. They can clearly see the debt of others, right? Like prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. But they have trouble seeing their own ledger. And so Jesus tells these stories, these, these parables, like this one, because stories have a way of getting around our defenses and perhaps like getting actually into our heart. And so Jesus talks about sin in financial terms of debt. Why? Because every one of us knows what it's like to be in debt. What is debt? Debt is a failure or an inability to pay what you owe. It's a failure or an inability to pay what you owe. And therefore, to help us grapple with our own debt before God, let's ask, what is it that we owe? What is it exactly that we owe to God that we are unable to pay? Because obviously, it's not actual money. What is it? Well, the scriptures say that what we owe to God and to our neighbor is love. It's love. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is what is required of every human being every single day of their life. And that means every failure to love God and our neighbor is a default on that payment. And since we fail every day to pay what we owe, we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. The early church father by the name of Origen, he gives us some specific ways to think about our debt, what he calls the threefold nature of our debt. He says, first of all, we have a debt to fellow humans. That's the obvious people like our parents and our children, but even to strangers, to the poor, to the aged, to those in authority, to love every neighbor as yourself. Secondly, we owe a debt to ourselves. Ordinance says we owe a debt to our body, not to abuse it, but to care for it as God's temple, to our mind, to sharpen it, to our soul, to watch over it. Then, of course, thirdly, we have a debt to God, to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, to trust God with all of our needs and our worries. Origin thus concludes, while we are alive, there is not a single hour, day, or night when we are not a debtor. See, friends, I, I find this incredibly helpful. 
to help us understand what sin actually is. Right? It's not just the bad things that we do, although it is that. It's not just the big things that might make headlines. It's, all the, it's also the good things that we fail to do every day that no one ever sees. It's not only the sins of commission, it's the sins of omission. And that's why that traditional confession of sin says, we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what? By what we have left undone. Brothers and sisters, for most of us, this is where the overwhelming weight of our debt is. It's all the good that we leave undone every day towards, towards God, towards our neighbor, even towards ourselves. Like, that's our debt. That's what we owe. Perfect love to God and neighbor. This is the massive debt that we have before God, and it is unpayable. Forgiveness has to begin with the acknowledgement of your own debt. Because this is the only way that you will stand, you will place yourself beside your neighbor and not above them. That we are all in the same boat as fellow debtors. Right, that's the massive disconnect in, in Jesus' story, right? The first servant does not see himself in the second servant who is in debt to him. Keller writes this, You can only stay bitter towards someone if you feel superior. If you feel that you would never do anything like they did. Those who won't forgive show that they have not accepted the fact of their own sinfulness. When Paul says that he is the chief of sinners, he is saying that he is capable of, of he is as capable of sin as the worst criminals are. To remain unforgiving means that you remain unaware of your own profound, perpetual need for forgiveness. Or as Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, he who is forgiven little loves little. There's a direct correlation between your awareness of your own debt and your ability to love and forgive others. Friends, this is why the telltale sign that a church actually believes in the forgiveness of sins is that there are actual sinners here. Ben Myers, in his book on the creed that I've been reading, says a church that takes its stand on the forgiveness of sins can never be a church of the pure. It is always, it will always be a community that is patient and understanding toward the timid and the imperfect. Whenever a judgmental elitist spirit enters into the Christian community, we need to hear again the confession, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, beware of the communion of saints where there are no sinners. Beware of the communion of saints that doesn't believe in the forgiveness of sins. Beware the communion of saints that isn't aware of their own debt before God. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you sin and you need a Savior, then you are welcome at this church. That's the only requirement. All you need is need. So first of all, we got to believe in sins, our own, personally, truly. But secondly, we are called to believe in the forgiveness of sins. And that begins first and foremost with God's forgiveness of us. See, the only thing in this parable that's more exorbitant than our debt is the mercy of God to forgive our debt. It's beautiful. Notice, notice how the king responds to our inability to pay. Not with cruelty, but with compassion. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. 
pity. That's the word for compassion that moves the heart of God towards forgiveness. He sees a man who, as a result of his accumulation of debt through his own fault, by the way, he's about to lose everything. He's about to lose his family. He sees a, a man prostrate, pleading for mercy. And you know, it is fully within the king's right to demand full payment. And that would be justice. No one would bat an eye. But what tips his heart towards forgiveness is compassion. And so it is with us. What begins to lean our heart toward forgiveness is when we see our fellow debtors with the eyes of compassion. Friends, notice also what it costs the king to forgive his servant. This massive debt he owes doesn't just magically go away. To forgive the debt means that the king must absorb the cost of the debt himself. That's how, that's how it works. By not making the servant pay, the king actually pays for the debt himself. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what forgiveness is. It's not just overlooking. It's not just saying it's not a big deal. It's not just forgetting the debt. The debt remains. It's real. The injustice is real. But instead of exacting the payment from us, our God exacts the payment from himself. He absorbs our debt himself. And that's what makes the cross of Jesus so amazing. Because this tension, remember the tension of forgiveness is between justice and mercy. How do we show mercy without subverting justice? How does God show mercy without compromising justice? And the answer is at the cross of Jesus. Where God satisfies the demands of justice. Not by exacting justice from us, but from himself. He pays the full payment for the debt of our sins, every last penny, so that he can extend mercy to us. He refuses to hold our sins against us because he has already held them against Jesus. He refuses to treat us as our sins deserved because he treated Jesus as our sins deserved. And that means in Christ, he now treats you as Jesus deserves. And that, biblically thinking, biblically speaking, is justice. To, to demand another payment from us from what he has already paid himself would be unjust. Listen, if you have ever struggled with the lack of assurance that God won't actually hold your sins against you, that he might change his mind one day, read 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, it's not just mercy that assures that our sins have been forgiven. It is also God's justice. To punish us for sins that have already been punished by Christ would be injustice. And God cannot be unjust and still be God. You see, at the cross, justice and mercy kiss. At the cross... God is both the just and the justifier. Then the expectation is, then is, if you are aware of how great your debt is, and if you are also aware that the king has absorbed all that debt himself, then as a consequence, you too will become merciful to your fellow debtors. You too will not hesitate to absorb the debt of others, their sins against you. 
Again, it doesn't mean that the debt is not real. It doesn't mean that there isn't real injustice and real pain. But the parable is telling us if God hasn't held your sins against you, then how can you hold the sins of your neighbor against them? It becomes an honor, it becomes a privilege to overlook offenses, to let love cover a multitude of sins. Keller says it like this, forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation, giving up your perfect right to pay back to the person what they did to you. It is a commitment to not try to exact repayment from them by inflicting on them the things they did to you. Therefore, forgiveness is always costly to the forgiver. But the prophets, at the least within your heart and at best in the restoration of the relationship, outweigh the cost. To be clear, forgiving others is not a condition of receiving God's forgiveness. It's not a transaction like that. But it is a consequence of experiencing God's forgiveness. But if you don't extend forgiveness to others, it raises the question whether you really know how much it costs God to forgive you. Because it cost him his one and only son. The parable is telling us if you insist on exacting payment from others, the warning then is that perhaps you have never actually experienced God's forgiveness. And he may, in the end, exact payment from you. C.S. Lewis says, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To believe in the forgiveness of sins is to know that God has canceled your sins, but he hasn't canceled you. So that you can do the same. So you can cancel the sin of others instead of canceling them. Right? To receive what we don't deserve is the very essence of Christianity. And to extend that to other people, it is always so haunting to those who behold it and see it. Wherever it shows up in our world, forgiveness is always shockingly beautiful to the world. And one of the most interesting places that has shown up lately in our culture is in the TV show Ted Lasso. That last was amazing. It's fascinating. And I, can't, I won't ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, you should. You can borrow my Apple TV account. I don't care. We got it for free. We bought an iPhone. It's nice. But here's the plot. There's an English soccer club. Her, the owner of the English soccer club is named Rebecca. She brings in an American college football coach named Ted Lasso to, cl- to coach the club with the very intention that he will fail. I won't tell you why. She wants him to fail for her own personal reasons. And so every chance she gets, she undercuts him. She sets him up to fail. She sins against him in so many different ways. Until finally, through the course of the show, through the first season, she's finally convicted. She decides she needs to come clean with him. She says to her friend, imagine doing something unforgivable to someone who doesn't deserve it. And then having to look them in the eye and tell them what you've done. When it comes time for this fateful conversation, she spills it all to Ted, everything she did wrong, every bitter detail. And she proceeds to say what she would expect. She says, if you want to quit or call the press, I'll completely understand. Before she can even finish the sentence, Ted blurts out, I forgive you. Rebecca says, you what? Why? And Ted proceeds to enact this very parable. To identify with her as a fellow debtor, to have compassion on her, 
to absorb the debt of her actions. It transforms Rebecca's life as ripple effects throughout the club. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness is scandalous, but it is beautiful and it is contagious. And that is exactly who we are called to be as the church of Jesus Christ. So therefore, I want to conclude with you the way that, the way that Keller concludes his essay, which is by giving you a bit of a field guide to what this looks like in practice. Because forgiveness is so difficult, because it's so emotional, I think we kind of need some concrete steps to guide us. So first of all, when it comes to this business of believing in the forgiveness of sins, remember that it is up to you to initiate. It's up to you to initiate. Keller points out that, interestingly, in Matthew 5, Matthew 5 tells us to go to someone if you know they have something against you, and then Matthew 18 tells you to go to someone if you have something against them. So basically, either way, as Keller says, it's always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the distance or the alienation began. That's it. The first step of absorbing the debt is to initiate the conversation. Even right now, if you know you have something between someone, consider the first move to be yours. Secondly, Keller reminds us to remember that forgiveness is an action before it is an emotion. It's an action before it is an emotion. It is, it is an acted externally before it necessarily is felt internally. Keller writes, it is not therefore primar primarily and originally an emotion. Forgiveness is granted before it is experienced, practiced before felt, not felt before practice. And that's so liberating in some ways because you cannot control the emotional response of other people. You can't even necessarily control your own emotions. But what you can control is your, your willingness to do the internal work over time, to not nurse bitterness and resentment. Keller writes, it is a promise not to constantly bring the wrong up to others, to yourself, internally, or to the perpetrator for the purpose of payback. It is a commitment to refrain from replaying the video of the wrongdoing in order to continue to nurse your grudge and to keep rooting for the person's unhappiness. It is something you can do regardless of the behavior of the perpetrator, for it is done in and from the heart. Thirdly and lastly, remember that the ultimate goal is a reconciled relationship. That's what you're pointing towards. Now, I want to be careful here because depending upon the nature of the sin against you, it may not be wise for you to trust that person again or to put yourself in a position to be hurt again. That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness does not require that. But it does require that you are at least open to some form of a reconciled relationship. It's actually Martin Luther King who said, we can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation, coming together again. Keller adds, to refuse to begin work on a reforged relationship is actually a way to get revenge. It's a way to make them pay still, which means that the debt has not been absorbed and forgiven. It means payment is still being exacted. 
Brothers and sisters, I hope this, these few steps are helpful because this is our profound calling as the church. To be the people who believe in the forgiveness of sins. To be the people who refuse to give up on anyone. To be the people called to show the world who Jesus is in our life together. And therefore, I leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4.32. This is our mission, church. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we do indeed ask for your help. Lord, because this is so unnatural to our, our own wiring, it's so unnatural to our own culture, but we ask you, by the Spirit's help, that you would give us an awareness of our own debt before you. Lord, show us not only the things we have done, which we know fully well, but even the things we leave undone. Lord, show us the, the massive amount of our debt, not to drive, drive us into despair, but to drive us to the cross, to, to drive us to redemption, to see what we have been set free because you have absorbed the debt of our sin. Lord, then help us to do likewise to our neighbors. Help us to be the church who believes in the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we can only do that by your grace. And so, by your grace, by your spirit, by your power, make it so. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.